Well, uh, good morning. Welcome to Living Stones. If you are a guest here, welcome. Uh, and if you're a member here, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Can't tell you that enough. I'm so grateful that I'm your pastor and that I get to present the Bible to you. Um, I understand that some of you might be here for the first time as guests, and it's a great time for you to be here because we're going through the book of Romans and the Bible. And the book of Romans and the Bible is really, it's all about who God is and what it means to be a Christian. And so if you're coming here with questions or doubts or concerns or wherever you're at on the map, it's a great time for you to be here. And we really want everybody to follow along. So if you didn't have a Bible open for that reading, make sure you grab one of the ones around the room and open it up to Romans chapter 4 because we're going to be reading through that together. And that's on page 941 in those Bibles around the room. And what we're doing today is uh, we're going to be looking at a text in which I got to do a little bit of background work to explain what's going on. Because if you notice verse 1, Paul just says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Right in the middle of it, or right in the beginning, he starts off as if he's already in the middle of a conversation, which he is. So I need to do a little bit of work to explain what's happening. What's happening in this chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4, is the Apostle Paul is trying to answer the big question of how does anybody get right with God? What makes us right with God? How do we get right with Him? That's the question that Paul is trying to answer. Um, That word right with God uh, is a word that means righteousness. What makes us righteous? And what he's trying to say in this section is he's trying to say this. We are made righteous, not by working, but by trusting. We are made righteous, not by working, but by trusting. It's all about trust. And what, he was, going, what was going on is Paul is writing to the Roman church, and in the Roman church, there's two types of people. There's uh, people who are ethnically Jewish who had become Christians, and then there's people who are non-Jewish called Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, and they had become Christians also. But there was division happening in the church because they, one group, particularly the religious Jews, thought that they were better and more important to God than the Gentile Christians. And so Paul is addressing that specific conflict. And um, the reason that the Jews thought that is because they misunderstood the whole meaning of the Bible. They misunderstood the whole meaning of the Bible. Um, You see, God had given the Bible uh, to be a story of how God rescues his people. But the Jews started interpreting the Bible as a story of how people can get right with God through their own works. And there's a fundamental difference there. Is this Bible about us or is the Bible mainly about God? And over time, what had happened is the Jews started to say, well, this is mainly a book about us and what we need to do so that God will like us. And I think that we have a common problem with this even to this day, even though that this was written over two, about 2,000 years ago. Um, I was listening to a podcast last week And there's a pastor on the podcast, and what he likes to do is street interviews. And he interviewed some people who weren't Christians, and he interviewed some people who were Christians. And the question that he had for them is, what is the Bible? And so to the people who weren't Christians, he asked this question, and this is how they responded. One guy said, the Bible is a way uh, to act. The Bible shows us how we should act, and it gives us something to go off of. It may or may not be true, but it's considered to be a guide to life. Another person answered that question by saying, the Bible is a book about guidelines that people should follow. 
Another person said, it's stories and fables about how people should live, and it's considered to be a, a book of moral theories and suggestions. So that's what the people who are not Christian said. Now, did you hear what the overall consensus was? The Bible is a book that is a guide to life. It's a book about how we are to live. That's the main summation of the Bible. Okay, now here's what uh, this pastor asked Christians on a Christian college campus. This is what one girl said. She said, the Bible is a helpful guide to teach me how to live. Another girl said that the Bible is a book about peace, harmony, hope for humankind because it teaches us how to live and how to be nice. And being nice is a message that we should all spread. So even the Christians in our society tend to believe that the Bible is mainly a book about us and what we need to do. And what the Apostle Paul is gonna not so gently do in this chapter today He's gonna say, it's not about us. Like, if you read the Bible, you're like, it clearly can't be about us because there's just a bunch of screw-ups in the Bible. There's only one good guy. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is God in the flesh come to rescue us. The Bible is not about us. It's about God and what he's doing to rescue his people. And that was the main problem going on here in this Roman church is they started to think that it was all about them. And because they thought it was about them, they got full of themselves and started condemning other people in the church. And so Paul is writing to this situation. Now, to be clear, there are commands in the Bible, but here's what you need to know about the commands. The commands of God always follow the rescue of God. And the order is very important. God doesn't say, obey me and then I'll rescue you. He rescues them and then he calls them to obedience. And that important. Now, what was happening in this church is they flipped the order. They said, if we obey God, then he'll like us. And that was what was causing the problems. Now, the the commands of God called the law of God, God gave to his people for two reasons. Number one, after he rescued them, he gave them the law to show them how much their hearts would continually need rescue. Like if you read the commands of God, there's no way that you can read those honestly and be like, yeah, I'm nailing it. Like, Especially when you consider the fact that God is looking at how your heart feels about each one of those commands. And so, first of all, the commands of God are given for us to be like, man, I really need a savior. And then the second reason that God gives commands is that commands are given so that a rescued people can display the fact that they belong to a really great God. And so the way that they do that is through obedience. So just consider some commands in the Bible. Consider the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. You shall honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Wouldn't the world be like a really awesome place if we just obeyed those commands? Those are pretty good commands. Like don't murder. That's good. Don't covet. Like don't place anything more important or value it more than you value God. Take a day to rest and worship. Like it would be, and imagine if Christians lived by those commands. The outside world would look and say, I really want to know that God because he's a beautiful God. And so the commands of God are also given for us to obey that God might be glorified, that God might be glorified. 
But what had happened is over time, the Jews had started to think of the commands not as a way to remind us of rescue or as a way to glorify God. They started thinking of the commands as a way to earn God's favor, to earn it. And what Paul is saying is you got it all wrong. And so in this section, Paul highlights two Jewish heroes, Abraham and King David. Uh, John Stott says that these are, Abraham was the illustrious patriarch of the Old Testament, like the godfather, like the great man. And then King David was the illustrious king of the Old Testament. Um, And so he highlights these two heroes to make his case, and his case is this. What does it mean? That righteousness has always been and will always be by faith alone and not works. Righteousness has always been and will always be by faith alone, not works. In other words, he's saying, what makes us right with God? We get right with God by trusting, not working. So he's going to prove it with Abraham. Verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So the Apostle Paul is saying, well, it, it can't be that Abraham was just like this really awesome guy. And God's like, you know what, Abraham, you're so awesome. I'm going to make you righteous. Because if that was the case, Abraham would have something to boast about. He'd be able to strut his stuff. He'd be able to say, look at me. I'm awesome. So awesome that God loves me. But Paul interrupts his own thinking as he's writing it. And he says, but not before God. And the reason why is this is because we all as humans have a tendency to boast. We either boast publicly about how great we are. Or maybe you're not that kind of person. Most of us tend to boast privately in the secret of our hearts. We do this by how we look at other people with disgust. But what Paul is saying is there will be nobody who stands before God and boasts. Nobody will stand in the presence of God, presence of God and say, I'm pretty awesome. Why? Well, we just read in one of the Psalms that our iniquities are more than the hairs of our head. And God is perfect and his standard is perfect. Now, more than the hairs, that's a lot of sin. Like, unless you're follically challenged, like that is like, that is a lot of iniquity. That's a lot of sin. Shay might be the only person who doesn't have to deal with that problem in heaven right now. You know what I'm saying? But it's a picture. It's meant to be a picture that we we have no chance of waltzing into the presence of God with pride. Nobody gets to boast in his presence. Nobody gets to boast. And if we don't get to boast in his presence, why the heck are we boasting in church? Why the heck are we boasting with each other? Why the heck are we trying to always measure each other up? So he's saying nobody gets to boast. And then he continues in verse three. He says, for what does scripture say? Now, just let's pause on that little phrase. It's a beautiful phrase. What does scripture say? Paul is building an argument. And this is the apostle Paul. Like he writes... He writes Bible. He's one of the greatest leaders the church has ever known. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't refer to his own opinions. He says, what does the Bible say? And the reason for that is because as Christians, the Bible is the highest authority. There is other authorities, but all of those authorities are in submission to the Bible as the highest authority. And so even for the apostle Paul, who is the end authority in the church, he says, let my thinking be in submission to the thinking of God as voiced in the scriptures. You see, so much of our culture is about, well, this is what I think, and this is what I think, and this is what I think. You know what we need of? We need a resurgence of saying, what does the Bible say? 
What does the Bible say? And so he says, let's refer to what the Bible says. And this is where he gets into the story of Abram. And he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's speaking to these religious Jews who really love Abraham. And he's like, well, what does it say about Abraham? It says, he believed God and because of his belief, it was counted to him as righteousness. And so what Paul is doing is he's quoting a verse um, in, in the book of Genesis where there's this guy named Abraham who God chose to love. And, uh, and eventually God said, from you will come the savior of the world. Now God entered into covenant with Abraham and eventually Abraham was the first guy to become circumcised, which Paul talks about circumcision this whole chapter. And let me just give you, if that makes you uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable too. So it's a weird thing. But what he talks about is how circumcision was the sign for the Jews that you, that you were a part of the Jewish nation. And Abraham was the first guy to get circumcised. And then it also says in Genesis 17 that Abraham walked blamelessly before God. And so what was going on is the Jewish rabbis were teaching that the reason God loved Abraham is because he got circumcised and he walked blamelessly. So what Paul does brilliantly here is he quotes a verse from two chapters before in Genesis 15, which took place 15 to 27 years before Abraham got circumcised. And and he quotes this verse and he says, no, way before he was circumcised, God looked at him and he saw his faith and he counted to him his righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is long before obedience came God's declaration of righteousness. God saying, you are right with me through faith. And the story goes like this. Abraham, and his, he, had, he was married to a woman named Sarah. And they were depressed because they were pretty old. And they didn't have children yet. And so he was talking to God about his, his being bummed out. He's like, God, I'm really bummed out. I don't have anybody to give an inheritance to. I'm going to have to give it to this guy over here. And God said, hey, Abraham, go outside and look at the stars. And so Abraham did, and God said, count them. God, Abraham's like, that's a lot of stars. And God said, yeah, that's how many descendants you're going to have. You will have a son to pass your inheritance on to. And then it says, so Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. Like, that story is it. All Abraham did was simple faith. He just simply believed in this great promise of God. That's it. He just believed, and then God counted it to him as righteous. Now, now that word counted, is, it, it can also be translated as reckoned or imputed. It means this. It means that you, God has give, gave Abraham something that he didn't have within himself. He accounted to his account something that was, uh, he made his account rich when all he had was emptiness. So think about it like this. Um, if you're, I remember being in college and, you know, as college students, sometimes you don't use your money the wisest way. And so you're out at college and you run out of money and you need to pay your rent bill or whatever. And so you call your mom and you're like trying to think of a good story. So you're like, mom, I had to buy a bunch of extra books this semester or something like that. And you're like, my account is empty. I have to pay rent can you put some money into the account? And your mom, she knows you're not buying books. She knows what you're doing. But she still comes and says, okay, I'm gonna put money to in your account anyways. All you brought to the table was an empty account. All you brought was debt. And then somebody else put their riches into your account. That's what's going on here. All Abraham brought to God was debt. 
and God considered him righteous. And that's the same with us. We do not get right with God by working, but by trusting. The only thing we do is we bring our sin to God. And God says, okay, thank you for coming to me in faith. I granted you that faith and now you've responded and now I'm going to give you my righteousness. It's, 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 a, it's a financial term. And so this counted, it's a double reckoning. So if you look here at verse two, it says, for if Abraham was justified, that word justified means a legal declaration of righteousness. Um, if you wanna know what justified means, there's a double meaning to it. It means just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. That's what it means to be justified. So God looked at Abraham through faith and he said, because of your faith, I'm gonna count you just as if you'd never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. Isn't that awesome? That's, that's, what, that's what the reckoning is. That's what he counted to him. And, it, and then Paul continues his argument. He says, in verse four, he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, he's saying, if Abraham had to earn this from God, then God would owe him something. But we know that God doesn't owe anybody anything. And actually, that's a beautiful concept, isn't it? God doesn't owe you love, but he chooses to give it to you anyways. Shows how great our God is. And then it says, if, if, if it's uh, verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And, and so what Paul is saying here is he's saying that this act of God declaring you justified, declaring you righteous, is a gift. That word gift can also be translated as grace. That's what Pastor Gavin talked about last week. It's grace. The thing about gifts are you don't earn gifts. You just receive them. Now, at one point, Jesus' disciples were arguing. They always got in arguments, and here's what they argued about. Which one of them was better? <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so they were arguing, and so Jesus took a little child, and he put a child on his lap, and he said to the disciples, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter my kingdom. Why did Jesus bring a little child? Because children, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says, are gift-receiving experts. <laughs> They're experts at receiving gifts. They know they bring nothing to the table. Like as a parent who has little kids, like if I want to give them a gift, I'm not like get a job and then I'll give you a gift. Like you just, they bring nothing to the table and they still ask and they're still willing to receive. Now this is different for adults, isn't it? Like you ever been at dinner and you ha enjoy your dinner and then the bill comes and then you like want to bless the people around you. So you grab the bill. And then there's like this fight. Like, no, no, let me do it. You don't have to do it. I don't, are you sure? And like, there's all this arguing going back and on. And the reason for that is because as adults, we, we have a, we're so proud that we don't like people giving us something because it means that we have to admit that we, we would have nothing to offer. And so Jesus is saying, if you, this is a gift, this grace thing, you have to become like a child to receive it. You have to admit that you have nothing to offer. It's pure grace. Grace is God's, as Paul Zoll says, it's God's one-way love coming to you that doesn't have anything to do with you. And, and what he's getting at when he says that about grace is this, is we have this great misunderstanding of grace in our culture. And it's been going on for a long time. In fact, this misunderstanding of grace is what sparked the uh, Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. You see, much of the people in the church believe grace to be like spiritual coffee, like, think about it like this. 
I can wake up in the morning and function without coffee. But I can function a whole heck of a lot better if I had some coffee. Can I get an amen? amen. A lot of times that's how people think about grace. We say, God, I can be a pretty good person, but if you gave me some grace, I could be a really good person. Like, I need some grace. I need to come to church and get all graced up so I can go out and be a good person in the world. But it's still kind of based in us. Okay, another way, a false way that we think about grace, another bad way to think about grace is as a spiritual spot, like in weightlifting. Pastor Brian Borgman told us this a couple weeks ago as he was teaching our staff. He said, some people think about grace like when you're, when you're weightlifting, you're doing bench press. Okay, now that's the one where you drop it down like this and go up. Now, when you go to the gym, there's gonna be some really buff guys with tiny legs doing a lot of bench press. <laughs> and they're gonna be on the bench and they're gonna have a lot of weight on there and they're gonna be leaning back and they're gonna ask somebody around them who's also buff to do, give them a spot. And what they mean by a spot is as I lift this really heavy weight and I drop it down, I just want you to kind of take your hands and just watch the bar, but don't touch it unless I need it. And a lot of times that's how we tend to live our Christian lives. We think of God's grace as like, okay, God, I'm gonna do my thing, I'm gonna work hard. And only if I need it, I need you to come and spot me. I only need you to, grace is only you filling in my gaps. But the Bible doesn't talk about grace like that, you guys. It's not coffee. It's not a spot. The Bible talks about grace like a spiritual resurrection. It says in Ephesians 2 that uh, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. And then it says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that faith is not even of your own doing. It's a gift from God. So it's saying this, we're dead. You know what? You don't give dead people coffee. (laughs) Like you don't say, oh, you look really dead. Here's some coffee. That'll help you. It doesn't help. And you know what dead people can't do? Lift weights. (laughs) They can't can't push. And the, the concept of being dead means this. We bring nothing to the table in matter of our own righteousness. We need a spiritual awakening. We need God to wake up our hearts, to to make us born again, to, to, to renew us completely in his Holy Spirit so that any good we do is actually from him, not from us. That's what grace is. And Paul is saying that, that if you consider that you're, you're living this life where you have to earn righteousness, then all God is, is to you is he's, he's your employer that owes you money. But if you understand that you are a sinner and you bring nothing to the table, then God is your benevolent father who just wants to love you. It's a gift. It's simply a gift. And so Paul transitions his argument from Abraham to David, the great king. And he says, even David proclaimed this. And he says uh, here in verse five, he says, and to the one who does not work, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. In other words, he's saying this. He's like, to receive God's gift of righteousness, being made right with God, you have to, number one, admit that you're ungodly. That's a hard thing to admit sometimes, isn't it? That we are not basically good. That we operate as people 
in our own selves, basically outside of God's godliness. And we need to believe in a God who is more powerful than our ungodliness. Amen? So the way that we receive grace is to, number one, bring, believe we're ungodly, and number two, believe that God is greater than our sin and that he's provided. And that's what David proclaimed here in this text. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You see, sin is both lawless deeds and falling short. It's lawless deeds. It's like, okay, there's a law, there's a line, it's a transgression. Like God says, this is the line, don't go beyond it. And we're like, well, how about this far? That's sin. But sin is not just going over the line. Sin is also falling short of God's standard. So God says, this is my perfect standard of righteousness. And and we try to jump and then we fall flat on our face. That's what sin is. But there's good news. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whom God will not count sin. In other words, David is saying there is a way to be considered righteous. And it's if God counts you as forgiven. And so in the picture, David is a king and he describes God as a king. And it's like this. Imagine that you went to a king's palace for dinner and you put on your best suit and clothes and you go out and all of a sudden you walk in the mud and you get all muddy and you show up at the king's palace and Jesus opens the door and he's like, you're not coming in like that. And then Jesus says, but I'm going to take off my royal suit and my robe. You take off yours and I'm going to give you mine. And he gives us his royal robe and he gives us his clothes. And because of that, we get to enter in. Because Jesus' righteousness literally covers us. So how do we think about each other as a church? We don't look at each other and say, that person is in and of themselves righteous. We look at each other as the church and say, these people, because of Christ, have been covered with the righteousness of God. We've been blanketed by his righteousness. And that's a beautiful thing. Because if it was in us, we could still mess it up but we will never be able to mess the blanket that's been put over us up, okay? And so this passage is a call for us to stop acting as if it depended on us. David Benner in his book, Surrendered to Love, describes trusting in God like trying to float on water. Like I'm a horrible floater, okay? So apparently I'm not very good at trusting because I, I, I just can't float. But what David Benner says is he was trying to teach a friend how to float on water and he was trying to explain, hey, this water really is strong enough to hold you up as long as you fully surrender to it and you don't try to flail your arms or legs. And so when you do that, you can actually float. You, you can actually lay on top of the water. And he says, that's what faith is. Faith is stop trying to flail your arms and legs. It's, it's stopping trying to bring anything to fix the problem and is simply trusting that God's grace is enough to hold you up. That's what grace is. And so that's the call. And there's good news for this. It's humbling to the proud, but it's uplifting to the broken. You see, because the, it's humbling to the proud because it means this, that your good works don't add a thing to God's view of you. God's view of you has nothing to do with you. That's humbling. But it's also uplifting to the broken because it means this, your failures, if you're in Christ, in no way diminish the way that God looks at you. So you could go and mess up royally today and God will look at you just the same. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so this is good news. And, And some people on this text, they say, give me something practical, pastor. Teach me about my marriage or teach me about this at work. And the most practical thing you need is your soul to be set free from the treadmill of performance. That's right. 
It's not on you to earn anything. The most practical thing you need is to realize that you need to continue leaning on him. That being right with God is not about working, it's about trusting. So then the next question that the Jews people were asking is, well then, who is this for? Who is this gift of righteousness for? Because after all, you buy gifts for people you think are really special. So this gift must only be reserved to us Jews, they were saying, who are special. But Paul confronts that and says, actually, that's not the case. Look at verse 9. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Okay, so circumcision, again, was the mark of the Jews. And he says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So here's what he's, he's doing. Hang with me here. He's saying this. He's saying, the Jews in the church were asking the question, well, if God is giving us a gift, he's probably gonna give it to us because he thinks we're really awesome because we've been circumcised and we're following the Old Testament commands. And so therefore he thinks we're awesome. And Paul says, no, remember, God gave this gift of, Abraham, this gift of righteousness to Abraham long before Abraham was circumcised. Long before. Now, as Christians in our day and age, we're probably not going to say, we're probably not going to be all up in arms about circumcision, right? At least I hope not. But we do ask a similar question. We say, is God's love reserved for people who look and act a certain way? Or speak a certain language or have a certain skin color or listen to certain type of music or avoid certain types of movies? Is God's love and righteousness only reserved for certain categories of people? And we may say no with our mouth, but I think we have to really take a good look at our heart because if we believe that there's people that disgust us so bad that God couldn't love them, then we're saying yes to that question. Um, one of my fears about being a church in a suburban area is suburban areas tend to be more, uh, tend to be less diverse, socially, economically, racially, um, they tend to have more of like a homogenous age zone of people who live in a suburban area. And if the church becomes homogenous, it proclaims a very bad message. It proclaims this to the outside world. If you want to know God, you have to look like us. If you want to know God, you have to look like us. And that's not what, what is going on here. What Paul is saying is there isn't a certain type of people that God loves more. This gift of righteousness is given to anyone who would believe. It's given to anyone who believes. That's what he says in verse 11. He says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was make, to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And so what... Uh, the Apostle Paul's referring to is he's saying Abraham's act of doing circumcision and Abraham's uh, life of living blamelessly was meant to be a seal of what God had already given him in righteousness. Now think of it like this, like a king's seal. Like when he would write a letter, he would put his seal on that letter. And the seal was a sign of belonging. And what, what Paul is saying is Abraham's act of obedience was simply to say, I belong to God. I belong to God. So like this right here, 
This little rose is Luther's rose, Martin Luther from the 1500s. It's Luther's rose. When he would write a letter, he would seal that. And it was a symbol that that letter came from Martin Luther. And so what Paul is making a case for is this. Our obedience is meant to be a seal. It's meant to be a sign, a picture that we belong to a really good God. That's what it is. And so he's building this case that long before Abraham was circumcised, God made Abraham righteous because God had this long-term plan of making a lot of uncircumcised people righteous, a lot of non-Jews righteous, okay? And so he says in verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised, we are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So basically, here's what he's saying. Abraham, or Paul is saying that Abraham... Because is, is the father of faith. And if you have faith, Abraham gets to be your father. And that's good news. And here's the reason why. Because back in the ancient times, they were all concerned about who their father was. Who's your daddy? That was the question. Who's my daddy? Because who your daddy was, it, it signified what your inheritance would be and what your status in life would be. And so because Abraham believed in God, God... His inheritance was that he got to become a friend of God and he got to experience the riches and righteousness of God. And so if Abraham received that and we have faith, Abraham becomes our father, guess what? We get to inherit the same things that Abraham got. We get to be considered friends of God and we get to experience the righteousness of God. So this is why Christians, we teach our children that song, Father Abraham. You know that song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. You know, and we'd sing that song. Um, if you're not a Christian, you're like, that was really weird. This is a... Okay? It's a good song to teach your kids because what we're teaching them is just as Abraham was able to walk with God through faith, so can we. So can we. It's a good thing. Now, I love how Paul chose to highlight these two characters as uh, illustrations of how to become righteous. Because when you read the story of these guys, you're like, these guys are messed up. These guys are screwballs. Like, for instance, Abraham uh, was a coward and a deceiver. One time God told Abraham to go to a particular city, and he did, and there was a king there, and Abraham was scared that the king was going to kill him. And so Abraham had a really beautiful wife named Sarah. And so Abraham went to his wife, Sarah, and said, hey, let's pretend that you're my sister so that the king can take you into his harem. And then they'll, he'll treat us nicely. Like that's, Abraham prostituted his wife because he was a coward. Twice. Two different occasions. And yet that's who God chose to make righteous. Second thing, David. David did have a heart that was after God, but David also made a lot of mistakes, didn't he? David was a power-hungry leader sometimes. At one point, God had get blessed him a lot, and David just continued to, to want to advance his kingdom and know how big his kingdom would be because he was finding security in his kingdom. Uh, another time, David uh, made a big mistake where he, um, he slept with his neighbor's wife who was a commander in his army, and then he had that guy killed to cover it up. Like these guys are messed up, and yet these are the ones that God 
chooses to highlight what it looks like to follow him because our following him has nothing to do with our works and everything to trust about trusting in his works. It's all about trusting in him. And so that's actually good news for us because it means this, anybody who believes can be made righteous. Anybody. No matter what you've done, you can be made righteous. That's why it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This gift is for whomever. When Jesus came to this world, he showed us what this looked like because the people that he chose to pursue were not the people that we would consider Jesus pursuing. Jesus pursued prostitutes, gangsters, demon-possessed people. But he also pursued uh, people who were good but had a lot of questions. The only thing Jesus said is, I did not come for people who don't think they need a doctor. I am the doctor and I came for the people who know they're sick. And so this whole thing and the whole faith that we have is first an admission that we're sick and we need a doctor. And it's a big question to us is, are you gonna build your life on your working or are you gonna build your life on trusting? It's about trusting. So if you're not a Christian and this is all new to you, but you see how you will never measure up to God's standards, here's what you need to know. God knows you'll never measure up And that's why he sent his son. The only thing you have to do is cling to him. But in order to cling to him, you have to let go to whatever you're holding on to. You can't hold on to your own righteousness and cling to his at the same time. It's you gotta cling to him and let go of yours. And then many of you are believers in here. And you became a Christian with this thinking that you're saved by Jesus and his work alone. But now you're living your life as if it's all on you. And this passage is a call for you to stop living like that. Like, you can't mess up bad enough for God to stop wanting you, liking you, loving you. And you can't do it good enough for God to him be more impressed with you. What is done and been declared is declared. You are righteous if you're in Christ. Nothing can mess that up. And so that's what the call is. Will you trust or will you work? It's your choice. Let's pray. God, please help us to trust. Please help us to see like we, anything that we bring to the table is just debt. And what we need is we need to be set free from trying to perform and we need to cling to you, God. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus, to see that you knew that we would never measure up and so that's why you sent your son and help us to cling to him so closely. We ask this in your great name.